Us Podcast presents Return of the Great Hunters, Part 3, Ute's Revenge. Written by Mike King and narrated by Brad Smalley. As the sun began its descent in the western sky of the Texas Panhandle, I made my way back to our campsite at Bent Creek. Billy Tyler started a fire, and I went over to invite Joe Plummer to our place. Well, hello, Billy Dixon, said Plummer with a handshake and a greeting smile. Plummer's tight grip around my hand reassured me that we were friends, and he was pleased to see me. I told him about Masterson's interest in the Battle of Adobe Walls. Plummer said he would be akin to oblige my offer. He told me he enjoyed conveying a story around a campfire and would be over after he filled his tin with grub. I pointed out to Plummer the direction of our campsite, seeing the projected long shadows of Tyler and Masterson sitting in under the declining evening sky. I noticed how the fire became bright and vivid as though someone had shown a spotlight on it. The intensity and excitement of the flames was like they were dancing among the thickets. Nearby, Bent Creek had the reflection of a distant glow like a bright sun on land. It did not take long until Plummer entered our camp. I introduced him first to Masterson, then to Tyler. I looked over to see if McCabe was within distance for an introduction and only saw his pout and shadow among the light cast by the flames dancing across the dark trunks of the cottonwoods. Plummer looked like a mountain man. The campfire pulsated with glowing embers and Plummer's large frame seemed to move in rhythm with the flames, matching every drip and sweep. I looked over at Tyler as his eyes explored Plummer's tattoos. His ears had holes for piercings, as did his nose. "'Good evening, boys,' said Plummer in his rolling baritone voice. I hear you all want a lesson on how it was when Kit Carson decided he'd take on an entire Indian nation down here in these parts. Plummer's voice rolled out from under the wild black hair that stuck up from being ruffled every few minutes with his spade-like hands. He looked out over the campfire. His eyes were black, the kind that reminds you of a deadly look of a bear. The campfire flames twisted and curled in obscure shapes, providing a small radius of light around Plummer's face. His nose was a deviance of his face, and not in a good way. It stuck out like a pinch of clay fashioned into a beak. It was arched, but in a way that looked irregular rather than stately, almost as if it had once been bitten off. Well, boys, it was the afternoon of November 24th, 1864, when Kit Carson and his troops decided to make camp at Mule Spring, about 30 miles east of Adobe Walls, said Plummer. Kit Carson, Father Kit as the Ute Indians called him, had been sending out two scouts daily to spy for Indian sign, explained Plummer. About supper time, all the fifty-some-odd Utes sprang to their feet and started down the trail and jabbered excitedly. The two scouts were coming back. The white men could scarcely see him except his specks, but from a long way off the two had shouted with a halloo, and the other Indians knew that there was news of the enemy. Now's when something peculiar overcame Plummer while telling his story. This is where Plummer rose and proceeded with his words to a rhythm of his body, almost like he began to throb to the beat of a war drum. He became mesmerizing to watch, especially with the flickering colors of orange and red giving way to the yellow and white near the center of the fire. Plummer, now standing and looking over at us, waved his arms upward. Sure enough, 
the two scouts had discovered a fresh trail of Indians driving cattle and loose horses. This trail pointed down to the Canadian, explained Plummer. This is when one of the Utes said, We think Father Kit will have no trouble to find plenty of Kiowa. It was at this point in the story that Plummer seemed as if he was in and out of a trance as he continued his story to us. Colonel Kit didn't delay, said Plummer. He directed a lieutenant colonel by the name of Abrai to stand with the infantry and guard the wagons. Carson, then with 200 mounted men, including 75 scouts and artillery, rode off to surprise the Comanche and Kiowa Winter Village. Carson and his column traveled 15 miles and halted at midnight. Nobody was permitted to talk or smoke. The officers and men stood holding their horses' bridles, waiting for daylight. The night was stringing cold with a heavy frost. In the gray dawn, the column moved again upon the Indian trail. The Ute scouts rode with their knees doubled almost to their chins, and their buffalo robes stiffly jutting high above their heads like split funnels. Plummer paused. He started to dance, twirl, and leap. His knees moved up and down with less rhythm than a spider on a buffalo hide. I could see his elbows move up and down, whirling with as much grace as the flames outlining his shadow. Plummer laughed and followed with a gasp. They had all gone only a little way when from across the river a voice called in Spanish, Vanaka, Vanaka, come here, come here. It was an Indian picket or herder, either calling to a companion or else daring him to cross over the river, said Plummer. Watch out, here I come, explained Plummer. He danced like a snake being held by its tail, wriggled, cavorted, excited, exhilarated, giddy, high as a kite, out of breath, as if he was in a tornado of joy. Plummer rested, stood still as the world around us went silent to the night crickets. Imagine the worst nightmare you ever had. Take a moment to recall it, hissed Plummer. Then imagine you was unable to wake up from it, because you're already awake. This was the sudden nightmare of a standing army and waiting as they suddenly realized the size of the enemy before them. They numbered 5,000 men and women, including 3,000 warriors, in three villages stretching for 10 miles along the South Canadian, both east and west of adobe walls. The first village was 170 lodges, was the Kiowa Apache village. The next village was 350 lodges, was the main Kiowa village. The third village, as large or larger, was the Comanche village. Plummer started to dance again, but this time he danced like a rag doll in a strong wind, with random jutting limb movements. He became unreserved, delighted, contagious, bubbling over with excitement and infectious joy. Imagine, he said, all those bizarre ideas that make so much sense when you're asleep start to make sense with your eyes wide open. I know now you want to know what happened to those who ventured into the jaws of death. Well, I'm about to tell you, snickered Plummer. The youths were quick to act, said Plummer. Even before the order was given, they dived into the brush and were out again, stripped for battle and painted for war. They gave their war whoop and away they dashed into the river to strike the enemy. Plummer looked to probe our interest. Masterson and Tyler were glued to his next words and Mike McCabe moved from his solemn space to join us. Maybe there's some aspect of the story that worries you, asked Plummer. You look almost sickly. Maybe you think the Ute Indians might have attacked the enemy in haste, 
before the orders were given. Plummer hesitated. Oh, I get it. You think you might feel the fear of battle and how this fear might drive you crazy. That's me trying to wake you up. To enter battle means you've got to go mad first, hmm? My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Well, you're correct. Colonel Kidd had no choice to send two companies of cavalry across the river and into battle. That's because the Utes went mad with a rage of vengeance. Well, I won't lie to you. That's what it means for some folks, but that's only if and if they ain't with me. I can wake you up without the need for psychosis. Plummer pulled a burning branch out of the fire and drew two curved lines in the ground. This is the river, explained Plummer. When Carson heard shots, he saw three enemy pickets racing for downriver with the Utes and Major McCleave's soldiers in hot pursuit. So he ordered all his men, except one company, to push the charge on this side of the river. Plummer's stick, engulfed in flames, smoldered in hot coals while he pointed out the location of the first charge. The cavalry charged indeed, said Plummer. They charged at such speed that they vanished into the cottonwoods amongst the tall grasses and the river bottoms, laughed Plummer with a pause. Plummer looked at us. The campfire flames danced in his eyes, glowing red. He held the fire stick above his head, The stick smoldered in broken embers. Now, boys, said Plummer, this becomes a test of one man's bravery. The battery hastened at best place. Kit Carson valued that battery. It was well for him that he did. He stayed with the battery and did not join the charge. The battery and escort toiled on. The going was hard through grass as high as a horse's back. The cannon carriages were so small that the cannoneers could not all ride. Every five minutes, the march had to slacken until the men on foot could catch up. Plummer dwelled, scanned the campsite, and suddenly jumped to the edge of the fire. He threw his flaming stick high into the air. His eyes darted wildly. Then he pulled his pistol from his scabbard and pointed it away from us out into the darkness. Pow, pow, he said. On ahead of Carson, the fire grew heavier. But it sounded further and farther away each minute, as if the enemy was being driven. Plummer explained while pretending to shoot at moving targets. After great labor, the battery climbed the ridge and plunged over and down the embankment. Carson looked beyond the ridge and saw a number of engine lodges made of white buffalo robes. To Carson's disbelief, the Indian village was abandoned. Major McCleave's cavalry had rode through it. The cavalry charges surprised the enemy. The women and children were out in the brush, but the warriors were rallied a short ways below and were fighting. Plummer congealed. I could see his eyes flicker. A plumber's face was unreadable. No fear, no invitation of a smile, only a smirk appeared. 
The fighting down the river, below the village where the warriors were making a stand, was very strong, sneered Plummer. The soldiers and scouts seemed hard-pressed. All the landscape to adobe walls was thronged with hurrying warriors. Plummer's feet pounded the ground with all the grace of a sack of wet rocks. His throat rasped, parched like a dead lizard in a desert sun. Carson urged his detachment forward, gasped Plummer. The Indians retreated with the cavalry pursuing. Carson, seeing the engines retreating, wanted to join the chase. Carson yelled out orders to his men. If that fracas ain't over by the time we get there, it soon will be. Colonel Kitt told him, and then we'll burn these hair lodges. Throw aside your overcoats, boys. We'll get them again on the way back. Plummer's head bobbed loosely from side to side, as if he was on a horse in the middle of a charge. A Carson and the cavalry spurred ahead, yelled Plummer. The battery followed at a gallop, the two cannons running behind. They all continued clear to adobe walls. When Carson and his cannons arrived at adobe walls, the men under Major McCleave tied their horses in the shelter of the walls. Adobe walls sat in the middle of a level plain of grass. Upon Carson's first view of the battle, he found McCleave's men deployed afoot. They were involved in skirmishes. The Utes were charging about on their ponies, shouting and shooting. The 200 Kiowas and Kiowa Apaches and Comanches in front of the Utes hung low upon the opposite sides of their horses and shot from under their horses' necks. This is when Carson noticed that beyond the first line of warriors, there was a thousand other braves forming under their chiefs. Yep, and a mile or two further east, there was a large village or more than 300 lodges. Warriors were swarming out of these villages onto the battlefield. Plummer began slapping the air around him like he was in a tantrum. He began with a soft, regular voice to a panting gasp. A plumber sucked at the air like it had suddenly become thick, and it was now almost too difficult to draw in. Colonel Kitt saw he had roused the hornet's nest, gasped Plummer. In came a battery of cannons, swept at full speed at the top of a little knoll near adobe walls where Colonel Kitt and the officers had grouped. Carson yelled, Throw a few shells into that crowd over there. A battery halt! Action right! ordered Carson. The two howitzers were unlimbered and pointing to the rear in a minute, explained Plummer. Once again, Carson gave the order. A load with shell! Load! Ready! yelled Carson. Number one, fire! All the Kiowa and Comanche warriors had paused to stare. The cannon was something new, explained Plummer. Boom! Bang! At the smoke puff, every Indian had raised himself straight in his saddle. The shell burst above. Number two, fire! Plummer jumped side to side as if he were the Indians dodging cannon fire. A boom! Bang! shouted Plummer. And then Plummer's voice fell silent. With one tremendous yell, the Indians wheeled their horses and away they scoured. More frightened than hurt, explained Plummer. Before the battery could deliver another round, there was not an enemy within range. I looked over in the direction of Mike McCabe. I could see excitement spin to emotional uproar. I could tell that every fiber of Mike's emotions was vibrating with anticipation. Yeah, yelled Mike as he jumped up, hopping from one foot to the other around the campfire. Mike was deliriously happy, giddy even. Mike McCabe's actions inspired all of us to cheer, causing adrenaline to course through our veins. We all whooped and yelled with joyous laughter. Plummer paused, waited, and held on to his next words. 
That must have settled them engines, boys, said Tyler. Colonel Carson was well pleased with his cannoneers, replied Plummer with a mysterious laugh. He ordered his troops to unsaddle and unharness, water the hosses, and let them feed. The troops took time to eat breakfast and hardtack and raw bacon. While the camp made merry over the easy victory, they told stories of what they had done and what they expected to do. I knew we'd win out over those Indians, laughed Tyler. They're no match for those cannon shells. Like our sharp rifles, no Indian dared to take on a white man's firepower. Not so quick, replied Plummer. In the midst of the talking and laughing, Colonel Kit Carson uttered an exclamation as he gazed down the valley through his spyglass. From his view, he saw the next village. Pouring out of the shelters, at least a thousand Indians were advancing on horseback in a dense mass. These Indians were dressed for war, fringed with lances, shields, gun barrels, and tossing plumes. From the side of the thousand approaching warriors, Carson yelled out a series of orders. Plummer started to dance around the fire as if he was part of the war party, but this time Mike McCabe joined him, playing out the role of Carson and his men. Saddle up. Get those cannons ready, Carson ordered. We're in for another fight. The whole valley is full of engines and villages. Now the command was hustled under Carson's orders, explained Plummer. The Indians came on rapidly. The Indians deployed and rode to all sides. Very soon the Kit Carson columns was surrounded and fighting for their life. Some of the Indians dismounted and crept through the tall grass. The others raced back and forth, firing and yelling. What about the cannons? yelled Tyler in excitement. Did they use the cannons? Yes, explained Plummer. The howitzer shells passed over them there, charging Indians. The shells burst between them, but did little harm. Then the cavalry carbines barked lustily. One shell landed and struck a horse, shouted Plummer. The shell tore a large hole through the horse and sent the rider flying twenty feet into the air. Mike McCabe acted out his role as an approaching warrior by jumping up and fell to the ground like a cannon shell hit him. We all laughed at McCabe. The first laugh came from Tyler like a newly sprung leak, timid at first, stopping and starting. The second laugh was held back for a few seconds. I could tell from the way Masterson rolled his eyes to the dark sky and half bit his lip. From deep beneath Masterson's chest came a great shaking motion, and his face muscles grew tight. I folded my arms, eyebrows arched, waiting. In a moment, Masterson's laugh was more like a burst of water soaking everyone around him with unrestrained gales that debilitated him to a high slapping and pink-faced picture of glee. I wanted to stay straight-faced, but could no longer hold it in. Before I could stop myself, my poker-straight mouth twitched upward, and I was laughing despite myself. Plummer stopped and waited for us to recover from an unexpected actions of Mike McCabe, falling down and almost rolling into the fire. "'May I continue?' asked Plummer as his eyes narrowed and a sneer formed on his face. Plummer leaned forward, his eyes bearing straight into Tyler's. "'Go on. Please go on,' pleaded Tyler. "'I want to hear what happens next.' Plummer poised himself. He arched his back. "'It was at this point in the battle a bugle call came from the rear of the charge,' said Plummer. "'The bugle sound came from the river.' Whenever the cavalry bugle sounded advance, the Indian bugler shouted retreat. Whenever the cavalry bugle shouted retreat, 
the Indian bugler blew advance. But when the cavalry bugle shouted halt, he blew the halt also. That is odd, I said. What the hell? The Indians had a bugler? How can that be? Must have been a white man, said Tyler. No, said Plummer. The bugler was Chief White Bear, whose Kiowa name was Set Taint, and whom the white man called Satanta. How did Satanta get a bugle? asked Tyler. White Bear had captured a French brass horn from the soldiers, replied Plummer. He had learned how to blow it. He even blew it for meals when at home. Well, that's a real catawampus, replied Tyler, and a hell of a way in raising some sand by a blather skit in a battle. I'll bet them soldier boys was all balled up over that there bugling. That there bugle just made the fighting get hotter, replied Plummer. The Kiowas and Comanches seemed determined to beat the devil round the stump. Then their engines had no end to ammunition, and quickly saw that the soldiers were limited in number, only 250. Now what them engines figured is, once them big guns shot twice, they'd have to quit to reload. When that happened, they would charge. Then it'd all be over. Plummer paused. We all sat deep in silence. The fire popped like someone had been dry-culched, yet no one blinked. Plummer's voice broke the silence. As the sun rose higher and passed the noon mark, Colonel Kitt saw he was in a tight place, whispered Palmer. The enemy was increasing. Parties of five, ten, twenty, even fifty were constantly hassling in. By the middle of the afternoon, there was fully three thousand warriors in the field. It began to look like the Indians were bent on keeping the white soldiers surrounded by night. There was silence on the battlefield. The Indians started moving their village goods and stow the women and children in safety. They are under siege, yelled Tyler. I know what them Indians are doing. They got the bulge on and a heap of them are going to wipe the invaders out in the morning. Yep, that's right, Billy, said Plummer. They were entering their villages and taking away horses and household things. This made the Utes mad. They didn't like this. They saw their plunder disappearing. This was also the time when Colonel Carson remembered that above the village, he left his wagons and only 75 infantry to guard them. If the Comanches and Kiowas discovered these lightly guarded supply wagons, whew, it'd be more trouble in the making. That's when Carson summoned his officers together. He told the officers they could not survive another attack. It was time to make a decision. So Carson healed to those Indians, did he? Responded Tyler in disgust. Carson must have been a real mudsill. Not what I expected. He just shittied out and pulled in the horns. That's just sound on the goose, replied Plummer. The majority of his officers voted to push on downriver and capture the next village. Most of his men were eager for the fight and enjoying themselves. But Kit Carson knew that he was having the biggest Indian scrimmage yet ever staged, and considerably more than he had bargained for. I knew it. I knew it, replied Tyler. That Kit Carson fellow was stumped. He wanted to take French leave right in the middle of a battle. He wanted to throw up the sponge and caboodle. Well, Carson and his officers knew these Comanches and Kiowas were strong in guns and numbers and courage, replied Plummer. They were battling for their homes and winter supplies. They showed no fear except to the howitzers. They all knew that when the howitzers' ammunition failed... Then the whole command would be bunched up and ring closer and closer with bullet, arrow, and fire. 
Carson had a bigger plan, a plan that would pull his troops into an offensive position. He ordered a retirement on the back trail to destroy the first village and open the way to the wagon train. By destroying that village, he hoped to draw the attention of the Indians from the train. Well, I think it's time to take us up a little leave, said Mike McCabe. I'll fetch me a special blend of scopper juice. Good idea, I said. Masterson stood up, stretched, and put on his hat while shaking a leg. I think I'll take leave, said Masterson. Well, while you boys are taking leave, I'll just go over and get my fiddle, said Plummer. I sat alone in the departure from my associates. I gazed upward into the star-filled sky. The moonless region looked like a pail of corn turned freshly in the ground. I imagined the promise of life in the darkness, a sense of warmth springing from the cold. The sky was a vastness to bring humbleness and an eternal space to bring gratitude. For this view was often given to me from my frontier home. No matter the years that passed, there would always be adventure on the plains. I felt blessed in this moment of silence and felt each night's sky was a fresh gift given anew. In the distance, I could hear Mike McCabe's returning voice. He sang an out-of-tune chorus of an Irish song. Billy Tyler walked beside Mike in his bouncy stride. Tyler held his usual grin plastered on his face. He was a lot like Masterson, upbeat, joking, and looking for banter. Masterson appeared from the creek bed and Plummer returned with his violin. Each of us gathered around the low burning coals of the campfire. Each of us broke out a tin cup and passed it to McCabe for a pour of scamper juice. Plummer stood up and offered a toast. We all raised our tin cups high. To the hunt, to the kill, to the frontier. Together we jeered at Mike McCabe's scamper juice crept through my limbs and a numbness fell in my brain. Now, where were we? asked Plummer. Oh, yeah. Carson was leading his troops into battle against a thousand warriors. When the Indians noticed Carson leading his men out from adobe walls, they became alarmed, explained Plummer. He had organized his men in sets of four. One mounted man led three horses. The other men on foot were ordered to fight. The two howitzers were dragged at the rear of the column. Carson's military formation was seen as a challenge to the Indians, and they attacked more fiercely than ever. During the charge, the soldiers' carbines found no rest, said Plummer, acting as if she was shooting a rifle. The Indians charged by horse and foot through the grass. Then the Indians set fire to the grass. The flames were behind them. The smoke surged on furiously, causing the rear to close up double quick. The fire and smoke blinded the column. The entire unit was enveloped in the crackling blaze that raced on both sides. Plummer pretended to be running away from a fire. Then McCabe jumped up and started kicking dirt in the air like he was putting out a fire. Carson knew he had to make it to higher ground, described Plummer. He noticed that, to his right, a small piece of high ground appeared where the grass was shorter. The Indians surrounded him. They charged in under cover of the smoke, shot and wheeled and scurried away. This gave Carson the time to arrest the two howitzers and put them back into action, cried out Plummer. Plummer reached down and grabbed his violin and started playing. The song he played will ever live in the moments of his story, unique with the thrills and pleasant emotions. Carson then called out his commands, said Plummer as he continued to play. By hand to the front, Carson yelled. The number one cannon was hauled from behind the rise to the top, was aimed, 
explained Plummer. Then Carson yelled, Ready, gunner, fire! And the lanyard was jerked by another gunner lying flat. Boom! The howitzer recoiled down to the front of the rise, out of sight, described Plummer. Now the second gun was being advanced, while the carbines rattled, and the Utes scampered, and the Comanches and Kiowas charged. The strings of Plummer's violin started to resonate around our campsite, and echoed out into the prairie. The demeanor of the tune and style captured all who was about the camp. There was hard fighting right into the village, expounded Plummer as he continued to play. The howitzers had to drive the enemy out. Uh, then half the soldiers were set at work destroying the lodges. The other half was supported with cannon shots from the howitzers. After every soldier had selected several good robes from the village and the Utes had taken plunder, the lodges all were set afire. By the time the Indian village was set afire and burned to the ground, the night sky started to settle in over the prairie. The darkness made Colonel Kitt feel uneasy. The burned village was no place for him. His ammunition was almost gone. His men were tired. They had been marching and fighting for 24 hours on one scant meal of bacon and biscuit. Carson ordered the wounded to be loaded upon the artillery caissons and carriages. The column headed up the valley, expecting to be attacked again at any moment. After three hours, Carson arrived at the camp in the wagon train and the infantry, and was glad, indeed, to be there. Even the Utes and the basket Apaches were worn out. That night, the Utes gave no war dance. They slept. So did the soldiers. The next morning, the enemy gathered, but this time just out of range of the howitzers. Carson feared the enemy might close the trail in both directions. No doubt from miles away, still other Indians were hastening in. Therefore, Father Kit took the advice of his scouts. They wanted to go home. He rejected the proposal from his officers to capture another village, and after he had rested his horse, he marched to westward on a cautious trail. On December 20th, the remains of his detachment arrived at Fort Bascom. So the Kiowas and Comanches whipped Kit Carson, said Tyler. Only the adobe walls saved their scalps. They had to fight fire to keep from being burned up. Huh. The way I get it, if it had not been for those big guns that shot twice, not a single white man would have got out of the Canadian Valley, said Masterson. How many Indian lives were lost to the battle then? asked McCabe. According to those Comanches who now live on the reservations at Fort Sill, replied Plummer, the Comanche and Kiowa loss was thought to be over 60, but that was never known. Chief Ironshirt had been killed at the door of his lodge because he had refused to run. Okay, then, replied McCabe. How many soldier lives were lost to the battle, then? Kit Carson's regiment lost two soldiers and ten wounded. One scout killed and five wounded, and many horses disabled replied Plummer. Pushing Bear had stayed and killed one soldier, and a Ute had knocked another soldier from the saddle. McCabe looked at Tyler. See, we are not whooped in the battle, said McCabe. We were just smart. Plummer said goodnight, and we all bundled up for early morning rise under the dim-lit sky. My mind began to wander off into sleep as I thought back to the story of Adobe Walls. I thought to myself, where does a song go when it's over? Especially if it's one that's touched you deeply. 
Does it disappear from the lack of sound? Is it dust and ashes? If a song touches you within, the melody lingers behind. Your outward entry of that song may have ceased, but the inward power of inspiration remains and echoes in your mind. Plummer's song lived and thrilled me to no end with pleasant emotions. I wandered into the depths of sleep and asked myself when I would once again relieve the story of that song. <laughs> 